This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan, former manager of Kmart in Cincinnati, Ohio. What was that? <laughs> An ad lib. You're just now going to throw out lines after episode, what is this, 187? <laughs> You're going to reinvent the opening? Uh, just for this one. I see. Tonight, for our 187th episode, we are once again discussing a Best Picture winner with Rain Man from 1988, celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Directed by Barry Levinson, written by Barry Morrow and Ronald Bass, music by Hans Zimmer, starring Dustin Hoffman as Raymond Ray Babbitt, Tom Cruise, or Thomas Mapother, as we will often refer to him on this show, as Charles Sanford Charlie Babbitt, Valeria Galino as Susanna, Jerry Molin as Dr. Gerald Bruner, Ralph Seymour as Lenny, Michael D. Roberts as Vern, and Bonnie Hunt as Sally Dibbs. Recognition for this movie? Rain Man was released on December 18, 1988. It would go on to make $354.8 million on a budget of roughly $25 million, becoming the second highest grossing movie of 1988, behind only which film? In 1988. Yes. I have no idea. Well, I wish you were drawn better. It was who framed Roger Rabbit. Ah, okay. I've never seen the movie. Oh, I haven't either. I thought you would have. I thought for sure you would have, because I think you've mentioned it to me before, but okay. Nope. Uh, This was a time that I was a third-year law student and first married, so... Had a few other things going on. Just a few. I suppose if it was a choice between seeing new movies or sex, I, I know what I would choose. Back to the film. Critics were tepidly favorable of the film, and Rain Man would garner eight Academy Award nominations for art direction, cinematography, film editing, and original score, winning for Best Picture, director for Barry Levinson, actor for Dustin Hoffman, and original screenplay. The release of Rain Man in 1988 coincided with a tenfold increase in funding for medical research and diagnoses of individuals for autism. The latter is primarily due to autism being more broadly defined in newer editions of the DSM, particularly versions 3-R and 4. The movie is credited, however, with significantly increasing awareness of autism among the general public. Rain Man is a movie famous in particular for its portrayal of a man with both autism and savant syndrome leading much of its viewing audience to incorrectly understand the intellectual capabilities of autistic people. The character of Raymond Babbitt has been criticized for fitting into the stereotype of the magical savant, autistic character. Characters like these are portrayed as having an otherworldly intellectual ability that, rather than disable them from living a normal life, instead assist them in a nearly magical way, causing those around them to be in awe and wonder as to how a person might have this capability. While having savant syndrome is certainly a possibility for autistic individuals, the combination is incredibly rare. Additionally, ever since Dustin Hoffman's 1989 Academy Award win for his performance in Rain Man, about half of all Best Actor winners have been awarded for portrayals of characters who are disabled in some way. 
None of these recipients share their character's disabilities in real life. Just one year after Hoffman's win, Daniel Day-Lewis, thus far the only actor to have won three awards in the category, garnered his first Best Actor win for his portrayal of cerebral palsy patient Christy Brown in My Left Foot. The Academy's incentivizing of such casting practices has drawn criticism from disabled actors and self-advocates, who argue that these decisions sideline more authentic stories about disabled characters in favor of leveraging already established actors' prestige. In 2006, the film was recognized by the American Film Institute in their list of 100 Years, 100 Cheers at number 63, and Rain Man currently holds an 88% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 65 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we start each week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? Uh, This is a movie that between my first semester and second semester of third year law and your mother's first and second semester in college, we went to this movie in the theater. It's one of the few movies we went to in a theater and watched together. Now, you didn't get in a big fight over this one, did you? No, no. We both liked this film. What was the one that you disagree? By John, directed by John Hughes with Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth Montgomery. Or no, Elizabeth... What was her name? Elizabeth McGovern. That's it. Excuse me. Your mother thought it was great. I thought it was, I thought it made fun of people going through pregnancy and early childhood or early parenting. I thought it was a buffoonish film. Well, we're not here to talk about that one, at least not yet. I hope we don't. We may. Just depends on how far, you know, this show progresses. I don't think it's like itching to be on our list anytime soon. Good. I guess my relationship to this one is the same as a lot of the movies that I've seen that have large cultural impacts or were award winners. It was a movie that I crossed off a list. As you know, that I it was important to me to watch every Best Picture winner ever. And uh, I accomplished that about a year and a half ago, I think. This was one that I think I saw maybe in high school. It's a very famous film. It had a lot of cultural significance. And so it was something I felt that I needed to watch sooner rather than later. And I can't remember exactly the first time I I saw it. It's one that I check in with maybe every five to eight years. It's not something that I go back to repeatedly, but it's, you know, at least a fun or engaging enough movie that it requires occasional repeat viewings. I think I've seen the film only one other time since I saw it in theaters. That would stand to reason. But then what is this movie about? Well, it's really, it's about the metamorphosism of of, uh, Charlie Babbitt. Um, Him going from being self-centered and I think the line at one point is, is you're using him, you use me, you use everyone, to being more... Seeing the big picture, being more magnanimous, understanding that there are, are reasons to have relationships with others, and it's not all about you in every case. I don't know if I'm the most capable person to be able to establish the difference between plot and story, but I think there's a very simple plot to this one, but a much larger story. The plot in this is is it's essentially a road trip movie. 
You thrust two people that shouldn't have ever been placed together in a car for an extended period of time, and they get on each other's nerves for most of the first half of the film. And by the end of it, they kind of understand each other and come together. Where the story in this one, I think, is different from your average road trip movie. You know, we're not talking about vacation or midnight run even. Charlie is looking for kind of a sense of home. He feels in many ways like an orphan. And he hasn't had a sense of belonging or family since he basically ran away from home and stopped talking to his father. And now that his father's gone, that's an even more displaced feeling. And he somehow finds a sense of belonging that he was never otherwise going to have while also letting go of all of his anger and resentment of the past. And so there could be a little bit of a nostalgia. This is somewhat of a family movie. And it's also a road trip movie. And I think it hits all three of those pretty well. Ultimately, the real star of this is Charlie because it's his growth that drives the plot. I know. I think, well, I, I don't want to ruin a did you know that I have for a little bit from now. But I, I agree with that sentiment. I actually think Tom Cruise is the much more subtle performance and often gets overlooked based on how kind of out front and center, how noticeable everything Dustin Hoffman has to do in this movie is. Yes, I, I, I understand your point. So where does this rank for performances by both of its lead actors? Obviously, this is a famous pairing of kind of the new Hollywood era versus the Brat Pack kind of era. You have a, a bit of a separation, probably about 15 years between the two at least. I don't know the relative ages, but Dustin Hoffman obviously appearing in stuff throughout the 70s. And this is kind of the peak Tom Cruise era, kind of from about, I would say, Top Gun in 86 through about 1995 and Jerry Maguire. Uh -huh. So where do you put these two performances for each one of them in their overall lexicon of film or of acting performances? It's a good performance. I would rank his performance in Officer to Gentleman above this. Or excuse me, A Few Good Men. Excuse me. Yeah, I was going to say, Officer and a Gentleman is a much different Yeah, I know. Uh, a Few Good Men. I would rank his performance in Jerry Maguire higher. I'm trying to remember. I had made a list and I didn't write it down. But at least those two. I'd say it's probably in his top five, but I don't think it's his best performance. So I think I would have maybe Collateral in there. I, I'm a big fan of Collateral. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's a great Michael Mann crime thriller noir with Jamie Foxx where he's kind of the villain of the film. He's a contract killer. So I think that was a pretty good performance. I'm not a fan of Jerry Maguire. I don't care for the ridiculous amounts of camp in it and uh, over sentimentality. It, it feels a little sappy. You don't like a little over overwrought for me. You don't like you had me at hello. No, I don't particularly care for that, but I think there are parts in the early part of that film that just don't make sense. I don't think the plot holds together as well. I, the story doesn't really pull me in in the way that it does other people. 
So if you're asking me for best cruise performances, I'd probably put this two behind a few good men and then this and then probably collateral for me outside of that. Like I'm not even counting his action picture performances, but that's where it'd be a little bit different. Hoffman, on the other hand, you have the graduate, you have all the president's men, you have marathon ban, you have uh, Kramer versus Kramer, which I actually think he's probably better in than this movie. Yes. And this is the one that I think he's still probably the most famous for. Yes. I mean, how much acting is really involved with doing an Im- an imitation of somebody with a disability? That's the question. I do think it's a little bit difficult to do an imitation, but you know how I have struggled with every time we do our Oscar previews, anybody that's basically just doing a a impression for 90 to 120 minutes. That's why I, I bucked as good of an actor as I think Gary Oldman is to win his Oscar for that bloated, weird, overly showy performance as Winston Churchill, where he looks, sounds and acts nothing like Winston Churchill (laughs) apparently was what he needed to deserve his Oscar for. And now he's just kind of playing the same character in these spy TV show thrillers for Apple TV in slow horses. He's just basically doing the same character, but a little bit uh, scummier. Anyway, I, I just, I have a hard time seeing somebody do an impression and know what is acting and what is, I don't know. There, there's just something intangible about it that I can't ever really put my finger on, but feels a little bit disingenuous. Yeah. So I don't have this anywhere near Hoffman's top performance. I would say it's probably outside of his five, even though. I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but I'd put the graduate and his Kramer versus Kramer performance ahead of these. Well, I guess I just like all the president's men too much to not rank it above this. But that that I think you're mistaking the difference between the movie and his performance in the movie. Well, his performance in the movie was so flawless. You have a hard time looking at. Carl Bernstein now without picturing Dustin Hoffman. I mean, was Sean Connery like a great actor as James Bond? There were a couple of films where he was pretty good, but no. Well, I mean, it's hard to judge that. That's not a movie that requires a huge amount of acting. It's just personality and charisma. But you can't see James Bond if you're like a true aficionado without seeing in some capacity Sean Connery. I think there's an iconic status given how revered that movie is comparatively that. Yeah. Okay. I, I, you say Woodward and Bernstein and my mind immediately thinks Hoffman and Redford, but that's because I didn't grow up with the original people being like huge celebrities or anything else. I grew up on watching the movie because you had it on every third week. It wasn't that often. Okay. It was once it was on once every three months. <laughs> okay. Again, exaggeration. No, you'd find it on cable and you'd immediately stop. It's like one of your favorite. If it's on cable, I'm stopping and watching this movies. Well, it's to the point where 
I can turn it on and immediately know where it is in the film and how much is left. Yeah. And I know the minute that I turn that on or Rio Bravo or certain other pictures singing in the rain, I can get you to just stop and watch 12 Angry Men. Yeah. There are just certain films for everybody. And that one is part of yours because of your personal connection being in what second grade and watching the Watergate hearings. Um, no, it was third going into fourth grade. You would have been close to 10. Wouldn't that have been around fifth grade now that I think about it? No. So it was the summer of, it was the summer of 73. So it was going from third grade to fourth grade. I would have thought it would have been from fifth to, or from fourth to fifth, because that would have been about the same time frame that I would have. Summer of 72, we went on vacation uh, with my grandparents to South Dakota, and my third grade teacher was from South Dakota. And so I would, I came in when she said she was originally from South Dakota. I talked all about South Dakota with her. So that was going into third grade. Watergate hearings were in seven, summer of 73, and then again in the summer of 74. And I would always play outside. Then when they would come on in the afternoons, I would run in and watch them until match game came on. We're really uh, not focused on trying to discuss this movie, are we? Well, you're the one who brought up the other, so let's go. Well, all right. Do you want to dig more into the background of the film? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Rain Man is a heartwarming and deeply moving film that explores the unlikeliest of bonds between two estranged brothers. Tom Cruise stars as Charlie Babbitt, a self-centered and opportunistic hustler who discovers that his estranged brother, Raymond, played by Dustin Hoffman, is an autistic savant with remarkable mathematical abilities. What makes Rain Man truly exceptional is Hoffman's extraordinary portrayal of Raymond. He imbues the character with authenticity that goes beyond mere acting, capturing the complexity of autism with nuance and empathy. His performance is a tour de force, earning him a well-deserved Academy Award. As Charlie embarks on a cross-country journey with Raymond, he begins to understand the depths of his brother's unique mind and, in the process, learns the true meaning of family and human connection. The film's emotional depth and humor stem from the evolving relationship between the two brothers as they confront their past and navigate the challenges of the present. Director Barry Levinson weaves an emotionally charged narrative that delves into the complexities of human relationships, making Rain Man a classic of American cinema. It's a film that will touch your heart, make you laugh, and leave you pondering the power of love and understanding. Thank you. Did you know? Two 1949 Roadmaster convertibles were used in the filming, one of which had its rear suspension stiffened to bear the additional load of camera equipment and a cameraman. After filming completed, the unmodified car was acquired by Hoffman, who had it restored, added it to his collection, and kept it for 34 years. Hemmings Motor News reported that this car was auctioned in January 2022 by Bonhams at Scottsdale, Arizona, and sold for $335,000. 
the camera-carrying car was similarly acquired by Barry Levinson, who a few years later had it restored by Wayne Carini of the Chasing Classic Cars television series. Did you know? For in-flight viewing, several airlines deleted the sequence in which Raymond Babbitt reels off statistics on airline accidents, except Qantas. They even promoted one of the movie's writers to first class once when he traveled on their airline. What Raymond Babbitt says about Qantas was, and still is, true. From 1921 to 2023, Qantas has never lost any jet airliners. Did you know? During filming, Dustin Hoffman was unsure of the film's potential and his own performance. Three weeks into the project, Hoffman wanted out, telling Barry Levinson, Get Richard Dreyfus, get somebody, Barry, because this is the worst work of my life. Did you know? Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, and Mel Gibson all turned down the part of Raymond Babbitt. And finally, did you know? Sir Michael Caine has revealed that Tom Cruise's performance in Rain Man was one of his personal favorites of all he'd ever seen on film. Caine found out somewhat late in his adult life that he had a brother he'd never been told about, who had lived most of his life in Cane Hill Mental Hospital with a debilitating diagnosis of epilepsy. With great sincerity, he said Tom's performance was beautifully done. He went on to say that Dustin had the showy part. Tom's required great discipline and a responsibility to draw the viewer into Raymond's point of view, as well as portray the painful acceptance of the limitations his brother's condition placed on their level of familial intimacy. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 188th episode, we discuss the film that started the poker boom with Rounders from 1998, celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. Directed by John Dahl, written by David Levine and Brian Koppelman, music by Christopher Young, starring Matt Damon, Edward Norton, Gretchen Maul, John Turturro, and John Malkovich. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance is up first. Dad, who do you have down? I have Hoffman. I, I had to go that route, even though I think Cruz did a pretty good job. I went with Hoffman simply because of the Academy Award and the fact that this has been such a notoriety performance for him. I went most charismatic on Hoffman just because I think he's the most likable person in the film. I don't think we're supposed to like Tom Cruise's character for the most part until maybe the end when he starts to develop some empathy and a soft spot for his brother. But Hoffman, despite his challenges, is supposed to be lovable. And so I went charismatic on that one. Best performance, though, I went Cruise because I do think he has the more challenging job. Hoffman gets to repeat certain ticks and he just does a lot of the same stuff over and over and over again, even though it's likable, I wouldn't say it's nearly as challenging as the emotional breadth that Cruz has to go through throughout the film for me. I think he has to be challenged as kind of a jilted, scorned family member in some ways that he feels unloved and unwanted and somehow has to develop this close relationship despite his level of annoyance and irritation which never bubbles over i mean i think it could be easy to overplay his level of irritation but even to the scene where he has to take raymond into the house so that they can watch what is it wapner yes the people's court 
even that I thought was brilliantly handled by him because that in somebody else's hands could have been a much more showy scene. And he decided to play it with a little bit of more verve and try and be somewhat secondary to what was going on with Raymond, even though he's the primary actor in that moment. Understated performance. Agreed. Best secondary performance. I went with our director, Barry Levinson. The simple fact he makes a small film feel personal for everyone. And he dwells in the little moments between the main characters to a big effect. I can't remember too many other best picture winners that feel like a very small movie that is delving into much larger themes on this level. Again, very simple premise. You've got a road trip movie, but it feels very intimate. And I think you have to be able to involve yourself with your two primary characters that you feel both empathy and sympathy for both of them in not only dealing with each other, but also the situation that life has been dealt to them. And that's the only way that this movie works. The third act has to give you that emotional catharsis. And so I thought the only way you were going to get there, yes, to a degree based on the performances, and we've already said Cruz and Hoffman for best performance, but I think a lot has to be said for Levinson as well for bringing that out of his actors and making sure the story crescendoed in the right spots. I also picked Levinson, but I did it for different reasons, which is this film has perfect pace. There is not a moment that seems wasted. Everything in the film seems to flow. It doesn't have a point that drags. I think every film at some point has a scene or two where you kind of go like, huh, it's either redundant or it's kind of off pace of the rest of the film. I didn't find that at all in this film. I thought the pace and how it was presented and the way that the characters interacted was the same and consistent throughout. And I thought that takes some great directing to maintain that level of continuity. So I, that's why I picked him for secondary. Now, you've already given your charismatic award. I went with Tom Cruise. And that's simply because even though Tom Cruise at the beginning of the film is shady, I think he relates to everyone. I think you either have an element of this yourself. You have somebody you've known, a boss or somebody that behaved like him. And you've also known people that have had that moment where they've reached a point where they're changing and they're going through a moment where they understand that there's more meaning to their life than what they had been doing. Whether you call it the come to Jesus moment or whatever you want to call it, I think it he is able to portray it in a way that relates to everybody. I, I thought about this too and thought about the fact that Tom Cruise might be the last big actual movie star of that generation because he seems to be a star no matter what vehicle he's in. The only thing I've ever seen Tom Cruise in that I didn't think Tom Cruise really kind of lit up the screen was, uh, what was the, uh, the last samurai? Did you actually see that film? Yes, I did. I don't know why I saw it, but I did. Oh, cause I have not. 
But that was the tail end of his like artistic run before he just focused on making action films. I guess because he was the last samurai I wanted to see. That joke didn't work at the time. It doesn't work now. Okay. But I would I would venture that he may be one of the last remaining movie stars. It would be between him or Hanks, maybe Julia Roberts from that era. Harrison Ford. Yeah, I suppose. But is like Harrison Ford still headlining movies? I mean, I guess it depends on what you exactly mean by that. Movie stars that are still able to open a movie. It's probably only Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks at this point. But if you're talking about movie stars that are still working, then I think you have a much different, yeah, broader debate. I will say that now that you mention it, I don't know how many people have a great relationship with both of their parents. Uh, like if you okay. usually have a great relationship with a parent, it's usually singular. You have a great relationship with your mom if you're a guy, but your dad might be a little challenging. Or if you have a great relationship with your dad, your mom irritates the living crap out of you. Uh. You say that as uh, we we record today, and you do realize what today is. Is it my grandmother's birthday? Yes, it was. Oh. My mom's birthday was today. She would have been oh, 82. Oh, 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 Yeah, okay. I thought mom. Your living grandmother, mom. your mother's mother, is her birthday is Friday. Ah, okay. Continue. Best scene, then. I have nominated Lamborghinis, so the opening. Finding Raymond, so the trip to the bank and then in the mental institute. Who's on first, so when they're first in Raymond's room and he's kind of having his conniption. I have Late Night Visitor, which is Raymond kind of walking in on Tom Cruise having sex. I think that would be awkward for everyone because in every situation where Tom Cruise has sex in a movie, it's weird. <laughs> right down to his licking the teeth of Kelly McGillis or... Is it McGillis or McGinnis in Top Gun? I have People's Court. I have The Rain Man. So the actual scene where he figures out that Raymond was the Rain Man. And they have that kind of cathartic moment as to knowing exactly what happened with the bathtub and the rest of it. I have Blackjack. So them actually at the table in Vegas. I have Los Angeles where they're at his apartment and things start to break down. And then the final goodbye as he's getting on the train. Out of these, what would you say is the best scene? For me, it's the Rain Man. Actually, that's the point where Cruz does his best acting. Because it would have been real hokey if you were, oh, well, you're the Rain Man. He slow played it. Like, you can see in his mannerisms, his facial expressions his body language that he's slowly coming around to understand what this is. And it's like opening uh, his eyes over a whole lifetime of believing of this imaginary man or ma imaginary friend from when he was a child. So I thought it was the best performance, the best part of the film for Cruz and Hoffman played the perfect straight man. He played it in a way that allowed Cruz to do it without hindering him, which again, they weren't stepping all over each other, which 
in this particular situation and being in close proximity would have been easy. I really don't have much to add. I think you're correct. This is the emotional crux of the movie. It is kind of the reveal that they've been setting up through the course of the film. And it's where things turn for their relationship, where Charlie starts to foster much more deep and meaningful feelings for Raymond. Yes, there still is the blackjack portion of things where he uses him for his own devices. So I don't think that that works out the best. The timing on that isn't as good as it could have been had that scene come maybe a little bit later after the Vegas stuff. But I still think it is the most important, not just the best scene in the film. Favorite scene for me, I have People's Court, them breaking in on the family in the middle of nowhere. And (laughs) yeah, so I just for the humor of that moment, thinking if somebody knocked on your door right now and said, my brother needs to watch People's Court, how many people are actually going to be sympathetic enough to allow them to like come into your home, these two strange dudes, and watch People's Court? <laughs> I guess today's version with that would be what, Judge Judy, or has she retired? I don't know what. I don't what, think she's on anymore. I don't know who's on. I, I really don't. I try to avoid that with uh, all effort. For me, my favorite scene is Blackjack. Having played Jack Blackjack in Vegas and having played it on cruise ships, just the sheer thought of just being able to milk the casino and take them for money just was so enticing and so wonderful and so enjoyable. Oh. Well, I definitely have it as the most indelible moment. It's the number one thing that everybody remembers about the film. Yes, and of course, we had to have a certain politician usurp the coming down the escalator for drama. I mean, that's been played out in many different films. It's not just this one, but fine. I know. I mean, we get that same escalator descent in uh, The Hangover when Galifianakis' character decides he's going to be a savant and play blackjack in order to get enough money to trade for their friend's life. Spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen that movie in 14 years. Yeah, well, for me, the most indelible moment is the who's on first scene, which is him coming to understand what Ray was and the audience to understand. Because when this came out, I knew about autism because I had known a couple of families that had autistic kids that were severely autistic. This was revolutionary. There were a lot of people who had no idea uh, that this existed or that it uh, was a condition that uh, actually kind of was more in the general populace than um, people realized. So to me, that was it. And of course, being a big uh, Abbott and Costello fan, you know, who's on first? I mean, I could just see how somebody with autism would have a difficult time following that uh, skit. So that looks like a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, 
There's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done so far for all 171 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Richard Roundtree, 81, American actor, was in the film uh, Shaft. It was in Seven and was in Speed Racer, which was, I think, a cartoon, if I remember correctly. First off, I have to correct the record here. He was not in the the movie Shaft. That was played by Samuel L. Jackson. I'm pretty sure he was in the TV show Shaft, unless there was a movie version in the 70s. That was what he was famous for. That was his most notable character. But he was also in Roots. Oh, okay, yeah. Osvaldo Desideri, 84, Italian art director. Worked on The Last Emperor, Once Upon a Time in America, Solo, or or The 120 Days of Sodom. He won the Oscar for his work on The Last Emperor on the Bertolucci film. But he also worked with very famous directors across his career, Fellini, Antonioni, Rosalini, Benini, and Leone. Edward Blyer, 94 American television executive, worked for Time Warner Cable, um, was big in producing the Looney Tunes. In some of its early heyday, yes. And then lastly, Burt Young, 83, American actor, was in the Rockies 1 through 6, Once Upon a Time in America, and Chinatown. Yes, his most notable characters, obviously, Paulie from the Rocky films, Rocky's brother-in-law, and uh, a very famous character to anybody who loved that franchise. And so we remember these here for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best lines. I only have four down. I'll start out with the first one. Charlie, when I was a little kid and I got scared, the rain man would come and sing to me. Susanna, you use me. You use Raymond. You use everybody. Charlie, using Raymond? Hey, Raymond, am I using you? Am I using you? Raymond, yeah. Shut up. He answered a question from a half an hour ago. Charlie, I just realized I'm not pissed off anymore. My father cut me out of his will. You probably knew he tried to contact me over the years. I never called him back. I was a prick. If he was my son and didn't return my calls, I'd have written him out. But it's not about the money anymore. You know, I just don't understand. Why didn't he tell me I had a brother? Why didn't anyone ever tell me that I had a brother? Because it had been nice to know him for more than just the past six days. Charlie. Ray, all airlines have crashed at one time or another. That doesn't mean they're not safe. Qantas, Qantas, Qantas never crashed. Qantas never crashed. Oh, that's going to do me a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just find that funny. It's going to do me a lot of good because Qantas doesn't fly to Los Angeles out of Cincinnati. You have to get to Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, in order to get the plane that flies to Los Angeles. Charlie. Now, casinos have house rules. They don't like to lose. So you never show that you're counting cards. That is the cardinal sin, Ray. Counting cards is bad. 
Raymond, 82, 82, 82. Charlie, 82 what? Uh, Raymond, toothpicks. There's a lot more than 82 toothpicks, Ray. Raymond, total. 246 total. How many? Sally Dibbs. 250. Pretty close. Sally Dibbs. There's four left in the box. Doctor. Ray, do you know how much a candy bar costs? About $100. Do you know how much one of these new compact cars costs? About $100. That's all I got. That's all I have. Let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Uh, I'll go first. I think this film is still revered as being a great film for Levinson as a director for Cruz and for Hoffman. It's an Academy Award winner for Best Picture, so it hangs. So I went with a 4.5 for the industry. Where it really falls off is the public. You don't find this film on cable. You don't find it a lot on, I mean, I don't think it's on very many streaming services. I, I tried to find it at one point in time and couldn't. And I think to some extent the public has kind of lost this. If you mention it and say, how about Raymond? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you ask people to name a group of films that they think are significant or well done or even ask them to rank their top 50 films, I'm not sure this would fit on there. So I had to give it lower marks for the public. It's within the consciousness of the public, but it's not highly sought after and highly liked. So I went with Legacy of being a 2.5 for a 7 overall. So there are just a ton of things I will vehemently disagree with you on on this one, which is good because we often over-agree on everything. First off, the industry itself, I think, has a mediocre opinion of this film. They recognize it for what it was. It's a Best Picture winner, and it gave Dustin Hoffman his second Oscar. It also kind of has cost us with the best actor race that I mentioned before in that we have so many of these disabled or gay best actors. You know, they're going through some type of challenge in their life, and that's going to be the shoe in to get you your Oscar. With that, at best, I think I can go with a three. I don't think this has high reverence in the actual critic circle or in like the industry at large, they recognize it as being a best picture winner from the eighties. That also was like the highest film or highest grossing film of that time. So I have a three as far as the public. This has been constantly on streaming surfaces. It's been on Netflix repeatedly. It's been on prime. It's been on multiple things because it's an available movie, particularly because it's an MGM property and MGM has been going through its like sale of things forever. But even so, I think if you mention Rain Man to the public, people who don't necessarily know much of the movie may have only seen it in sparse takes, know the blackjack scene, and they know what Rain Man means. It's taken on a outsized cultural significance beyond what the movie is to the point of either derision or used as an insult or made more popularized by other forms of reference or referential nature within other properties. 
So I had a three for the industry. I had a four for the public. And I also have a seven. Well, I, I came up with, or I mean, the introduction was based on that, which is people will always remember if you just go Kmart, Cincinnati, Ohio, Ohio, you immediately know what that came from. I don't think people know that nearly as much as the name of the film and what that signifies. Being one of the first mentally challenged people that we can popularly point back to as being a widely known character in film and TV. Well, I do. I do think that that's been a significant factor in this as well. The average on this one was a seven for legacy. You didn't need help with the math on that one. No. Okay. Add them together and divide by two. Okay. Okay. Since I do the averages every week, I, I'm pretty sure I know how to put together an average, but thank you for your input on that. Impact and significance, then. I'm going to make this pretty short and sweet. The industry, while the critics were not, like, over the moon, still was a Best Picture winner. It still had two fairly big stars in it. Dustin Hoffman changed the Oscars forever with his win. It was one of the highest grossing movies of the year. In some circles, some people have said that it is the highest grossing movie of that year. And it was somewhat beloved across the industry if it wasn't just the critics. Because there was some kind of mixed reviews or some very tepid responses by people who were expecting a little higher form of art. But the public... You have a film that, again, this is about the last time in the era that we would have the top grossing film also be the best picture winner. It didn't happen much after this. I think one of the lone exceptions being Titanic, winning both best picture and being the top grossing film of the year. Very rare. And especially now, it will never happen because we make more popcorn films that will do well successfully. And we nominate all of these very small budget, very tiny films for best picture. So I have a five for the industry. I have a four for the audience for a nine. I have a four for the industry and a 4.5 for the public. So I have an 8.5 for the industry. Yeah, the critics didn't like it. I had to give it big points because it won the Academy and they had a ton of nominations. And while I would love to say, you know, I had to start thinking about what is a five for the public. It has to be some sort of blockbuster that not only draws tickets, but impacts society. So I had to step it back a half point because even though it was probably or may have been the top grossing film of the year, it didn't rank as high as some of the other films as far as impact on culture in the general public. So that's where I came up with the nine overall. You didn't have a nine overall. You started out by saying you had an 8.5. Excuse me, 8.5. I misstated that. Yes. So that was an 8.75 average between the two of us. Novelty. All right. You have to give the movie credit for its audacity to portray autism. But at the same time, for the two points that I might add for that, I have to detract one because of the odd stereotypes of autism that it has helped to create 
in the legacy of this movie. Otherwise, as I said, this is a very simple concept movie. It's a road trip movie where they discover something about one another and become closer. And we've been doing road trip movies since Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath or Sullivan's Travels. Now, as far as execution, on the emotional level, well, it does fine. But I can't say anything else about this was done on an anything more than an above average level. I think it's decent, but it's not like anything exceptional. The writing is moderate. I could give or take the score. And the cinematography is pretty basic, if you ask me. Yes. While it the points for mental health would be a little bit more up there, I just, I can't get above a five. I really can't. Ooh. Ooh. Ugh. I, I thought it was more novel than that, simply because it challenged a entire concept of uh, mentally challenged or disabled people. Because I looked up, there just was not that many films that were like this, that portrayed people with limitations. Now, sure, it's a road picture. I mean, you the one thing you failed to mention, how many Crosby and Hope movies with Dorothy L'Amour were road pictures. So that's not novel. The change or the metamorphosism of Tom Cruise's character during the film and coming to become more ma- or, uh, more in tune with family and becoming more magnanimous in general, that was fairly novel. So I can't go down to your level. I went with a 7.5. Because of the subject nature of the film, it put something into the culture. It wasn't accurate, but at least it made a lot of people aware of a situation or condition that was not well discussed. Again, I think that while you make a case for the awareness, and I did, it creates a misconception on the front end when this is the first and, for a lot of people, only thing they knew about mental health for a good while. And if this is the picture of what mental health and autism is, it's not an accurate portrayal. And so I do have to draw back from that. Okay. So it's a 6.25 average between the two of us. Classicness. I would normally let you go, but I have a few things that I'd I'd like to just put out there first. I just think that even though this is somewhat audacious for the subject material at the time, the public has really outgrown this movie as far as awareness of mental health, particularly in the last few years. In no way would I say that we have a perfect collective thought on what mental health is, on how to deal with mental health, or to deal with those with severe mental challenges. It was revolutionary at the time, but we're in a much different and better place than we were at the time. We've advanced the ball. This was a helpful or historic thing towards that aim, but I do think that we've outgrown what this was at the time. Second, I think this unfortunately was a captivating enough movie that it promoted some dangerous stereotypes of those with severe mental illnesses. Again, the magical autistic guy. So taking that all into account, I still think there is something to be said about the aesthetic point of classicness for this that should be considered, but I'll wait until you give yours. 
taking those in into consideration. So you do everything but give your score? All right, fine. So if you take the aesthetic into it, and I do think that the emotional climax of the movie is effective yet, I just don't think it overcomes some of the downsides that contribute to this film. And before you want to step on parts of this and say, all right, well, we didn't have a lot of diversity. I'm sorry, I don't necessarily agree. What were you going to have Tom Cruise's brother be black? <laughs> uh, I had nothing to say about diversity. Well, you probably will say there's at least one strong female character in the movie, but this is a very limited cast as well on top of it. Wasn't even going there. So I have a five. Boy. Okay. I have a seven. I think it did bring new awareness. I think it continues to bring awareness to the situation or the condition of autism. I gave it some steps down. I found the scene in the elevator with Raymond and Susanna. I thought that was a little creepy. And I don't think in today's world you would even dream of putting that into the film um, because it, it borders on abuse. I think it's meant to be endearing. And I certainly don't have as strong a feeling as you do, but point taken. Okay, that's one of the things. So I gave it, you know, we start with our, you start with a benchmark of seven. So I was just using yours. So I gave it a point up for recognition. Then I gave it a point back down for that scene. Overall, I thought from classicness, there's nothing in here that really causes a lot of angst. So I, I gave it a seven. So that's a six average between the two of us. Boy, you came up with that really quickly. You're really getting good with this math. Rewatchability. I think it's on a scale of like one to 10. It would probably be a three that I would put this on. So in five point terms, it would be a 1.5. And the likelihood that I would leave it on, just because I do think it in certain stretches of the film would be an engaging film to kind of leave on, is about a two and a half. Like I'm neither big on leaving it on, but I'm not one who's going to go over and automatically shut it off either. So I have a four overall. Yes. I have generally as a, a six as a film that I feel I should watch periodically. And I'm not, if it comes on, I'll stop, look at it. Um, a little bit above that is something I should. And quite frankly, after having watched the film again, I'm kind of disappointed myself that I hadn't rewatched it at least more than I had. It's an enjoyable film. It's the kind of film you could put on, you know, as I comment, you know, I have a long, sometimes stressful week. And on a Friday night, we, we have pizza and uh, try to relax. And sometimes I just don't feel like having a film that I have to do a lot of thinking. I either want to laugh or feel comfortable with the situation that's being presented. And this is a film that I could easily put on on a Friday night and sit and watch and feel very well afterwards. Seven. So that's a 5.5 average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 88% for Google users and a 90% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.9 overall. So to recap the categories... We had a 7 for Legacy, an 8.75 for Impact and Significance, 
a 6.25 for novelty, a 6 for classicness, a 5.5 for rewatchability, and an 8.9 audience score, giving us a final total of 42.4, and currently placing it on our list in between Silver Linings Playbook and Big. (laughs) Okay. If you disagree with any of our scoring, you can certainly write to us at greatest all time movie podcast at gmail.com or any of our socials at gmote podcast on Instagram X or TikTok. Otherwise you can find the full graded list up on our website, RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash gmote podcast. That takes us to remaining questions. Did Charlie forgive his father? Yes, of course. In fact, the film discloses that he forgave his father. When he makes the comment that, I guess, you know, I I never returned his calls and I don't fault him for writing me out of the will after, you know, his son ignores him for all those years. That's forgiveness, okay? It may not be the level of forgiveness and the, the, the sad, groveling, you know, type that you usually portray, but that starts the process. Did it come eventually? Maybe. But that's the process of, you know, he came to realize that what his behavior was, was just as bad, if not worse than what his father's was. And so therefore, that's the first step in forgiveness. I'm not sure I would say that's forgiveness so much as acceptance, but maybe they're one in the same. Just since it was never explicitly stated, it was a question I had. What happens to the Buick? Oh, if I'm Cruz, I keep the damn thing and I drive it around L.A. at least for a while. And ultimately, my guess is is that thing is going to be sold for a large amount of money. I would guess so. And given that he's somewhat of a car dealer, I think it gives him a bit of prestige to be riding around in that. And it doesn't cost him a thing. Yes. I mean, if you're going to bother to take it all the way from Cincinnati to Los Angeles, you might as well drive around in it. Yes. How did the casino figure out that they were counting cards? Well, every casino has every square inch of the casino floor under video surveillance. And they have people who are experts in body language, in small tales, in psychology. And they are reviewing those tapes, trying to determine why or how something happened the way it did. So my guess is, is that they had people really studying those tapes, trying to figure out how they were coming up with that. And the only thing they could conclude was card counting. The other option is that the uh, prostitute at the bar, in exchange for a few hundred bucks, told them that they said they were counting cards. Well, you just said they have every inch of the place basically wired for sound and camera. If he's saying it loud enough in a casino bar, that would have been the most likely situation is they didn't even need to pay her. They already knew. True. Any remaining questions for you? Uh, no. All right. Final thoughts for the week. I, I'm hoping that the actors, uh, the two actors unions eventually settle their strike. I know it's been 
there hasn't been a lot of progress. I thought for sure that that would settle up as soon as the writers resolved, but I'm starting to look to the prospect of not having a lot to watch except old movies and sports here towards the end of the year and in the first part of 2024. I think it's definitely going to affect TV the most because we already were kind of devoid of a lot of the things that were, unless it was basically all shot, which I still think they will add storylines and such with the writers out. There wasn't a lot for newer scripts or things to get done on a weekly or whatever basis. So even if they filmed three episodes, you're not going to get a new TV series because they still have to film the back five episodes. Whereas a script was probably done for most of these movies. Yes, there would be some development on the set itself, but it's a little easier to finish that without a writer as opposed to a TV show that needs it much more intimately. So we're still going to get a few of these movies and we have plans to see flowers of the killer moon this weekend. We also have, well, I have plans to see the holdovers in a couple of weeks and there's plenty of good awards type movies still to be accounted for this year. I mean, we're getting a Marvel movie for gosh sakes in a couple of weeks, but I think the longer this kind of drags out and some of these smaller movies that were a little bit notable, I don't know. Do they continue to push stuff in the spring? It just leads me again to my conclusion to suggest to people that you treat it somewhat in the same vein that you did at times during the pandemic without all the sickness and death and all the scariness you catch up on stuff that you weren't able to get to over the last several years of peak TV series that you missed or that you weren't a part of at the time that they came out, but that you have some possibility to catch up on now. I'm just about to finish The Wire. I finished Breaking Bad earlier this year for the first time. Just some older prestige TV shows that you want to go back and finish. Like for you, Dad, you might finally finish the last like season and a half of Mad Men. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did Cheers during the pandemic from beginning to end. Then I did Frasier from beginning to end. And then I actually went on Hulu and watched Mary Tyler Moore from beginning to end from the 70s and Bob Newhart. I got about halfway through. I thought you also did Dick Van Dyke. That show I've seen so many times. There's no way in hell that I need to see it again. You can pop it on and I can tell you what episode it is and what season. It's almost the only show that's more burned into my memory than Dick Van Dyke is Hogan's Heroes. Fair enough. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Listen, here's the thing. If you can't spot the sucker in your first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. Next week, for our 188th episode, we discuss the film that started the poker boom with Rounders from 1998, celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. Directed by John Dahl, written by David Levine and Brian Koppelman, Music by Christopher Young, starring Matt Damon, Edward Norton, Gretchen Maul, John Turturro, and John Malkovich. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in in our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, X, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. 
greatest movie of all time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.